everybody. Welcome back. You're listening to Femdementalists, and we're on Quarantine Series Episode X. I don't know. I lost count. <laughs> I don't, <laughs> I don't but know. You know what? The good thing is we have a count this That's time true. around. That's true. And if you haven't noticed, we're very official on Instagram now as well. Only took us five oh. years, uh, but we yeah. will plug that later. Oh, official. We are so official. Fiza's got this big mic the size of her torso. We've got a. <laughs> it Instagram is literally. Account. We have a logo now. <laughs> like, come on. Why Why are our inboxes not flooding with people? I just dying want to know why it took you so many years to tell me. It took us this many years to do it seriously, I suppose. Uh, we're super excited today. Oh, God. My name's Mahek. <laughs> <laughs> My name's Faiza. Hopefully we, you know our voices by now. I know. But if not, now you know. Now you know. Uh, we're super excited today to have a friend of mine from upstate New York on with us. Her name is Marwa. Um, she's from grand old upstate New York and she's married to a law enforcement officer, non-specific because we respect people's private space up here. Um, we wanted to have, and I'll, I'll let Marwa jump in, but uh, we wanted to have Marwa on the, uh, the podcast, um, to give us a balanced view of police of law enforcement. Um, obviously you all know we feel some type of way about law enforcement and that's only been exacerbated by recent events. And so thought, we thought it'd be really interesting to spend some time chatting with somebody who may also be critical of law enforcement, but also has an insight into their policies, procedures, culture, thought process, all of those things that we as non-law enforcement officers or, or whatever you want to call it may not. Um, that was a very long introduction for no good reason. Marwa, say hello. Hey, actually, I loved your introduction. Thank you. Because a lot of people do say kind of similar things or even maybe a little bit beyond that and are like, oh, wow, you seem to really hate cops. How do you deal with that? And I'm like, oh, I don't. I just, you know, like I am capable of, of being critical of any type of group, even if that's like people in my faith group or the police agencies around and us. And having a multidimensional view of yeah, exactly. like so an advanced human being. It's interesting that some people think that you, you can't or that they like uh, somehow don't align with each other. But I am absolutely capable of not liking certain parts of the culture and also seeing and understanding and making logic out of some of it. But, but, you know, okay, being so a member I think, of the that's, I think that's a really good place to start the conversation because I think baseline, we should start with what are your views? So give us like a one minute rundown of, and this is, this might be an impossible task, but yeah, give me like me three things minute. that you sure appreciate about law enforcement and three things that you think are their biggest issues. And I think maybe that sets the baseline. Um, sure. Yeah, that's good. I mean, what I, what I appreciate obviously from law enforcement is the idea and especially the follow through of actually receiving a service and protection and help. And it definitely feels really great 
when you are in a place of need and somebody meets you with respect and kindness and courtesy. And I'm going to say that's all the three things because there's it, it encompasses a lot, but ultimately what you want out of an interaction with any law enforcement officer is respect and courtesy. And, um, you know, you don't want to be intimidated by them. And so then I'll segue right into what I don't like, which is, you know, I am a person of color. I am a first generation American born to immigrants from North Africa. And I don't necessarily have the most rosy view of law enforcement in general. And that's police, that's cops, that's, you know, any kind of like courtroom setting where there's lawyers and prosecutors and judges. However, it stems from this feeling of being looked down upon. And so the opposite of what you might want or expect out of somebody that is going to serve and protect you, you don't want to be met with um, an automatic like tone that is demeaning or actually intimidating and you don't want to be met with disrespect and you want, and you don't want to be afraid and you might be afraid for many reasons. You might be afraid because of how they approach you. You might be afraid because of how they're dressed or because you see weapons on them, what have you. So again, you know, I don't know if that's exactly three things or more or less, but in general, that's what, you know, the, the, the things that I that I don't particularly find appealing about interacting with or seeing even even just viewing them from a distance. No, that's perfect. And somehow, weirdly, it's like you're segueing me perfectly into my next question, even though we didn't even um, share questions with you this time. So thanks for reading my mind. <laughs> sure. Given what you said about the things you don't appreciate slash loathe um, about law enforcement. Can you give us, I don't even know how to say this. Can you tell us how those concerns, criticisms, disdains, whatever you want to call them towards law enforcement have been um, countered or rebutted by your spouse or by your involvement as somebody kind of in the law enforcement world like basically what's his just like when you yeah not even have they changed but like Uh i assume you guys have had these conversations slash Mm -hmm. maybe you've stopped because it's become such um a difficult conversation to have in such a charged conversation but what does he say when you're like, hey, I think law enforcement officers intimidate, you know, act with undue force, X, Y, Z. What's his justification? You know, it really Does depends. he have a justification? Yeah, often he does. And it really depends. And it's, it's interesting because um, we got married in close to like, uh, geez, like eight years ago. I don't know. And it was right around the time where things kind of became um, like Black Lives Matter emerged. There was the um, like very notorious issue with um, George Zimmerman and Trayvon Martin and then Michael Brown. And so I was coming into marriage to a police officer 
or a law enforcement officer and seeing these things happen. And I felt very defensive of him. And I do recall, especially at the time in the beginning, that um, I would hear a lot of rebuttals, like you said, about protocol, which is that one of the most common things I I recall hearing. By the way, protocol is an awful rebuttal. (laughs) Like the fact I know that this is how we do things. That is not an okay justification, but, it, but okay. 100%. And, but you know, like it's interesting too, because even though there are so many aspects to law enforcement that I grew up being wholly intimidated by, I still viewed them as an authoritative figure that I was to obey basically. And so when I was told this is what we're trained to do. So for example, Um, now he would always caveat everything with, I don't know what actually happened. However, one particular rebuttal might be we're trained. If we're going to pull a gun to shoot, it's, it's trained to kill. So like there was often rebuttals on the internet from civilians that are like, why wouldn't you shoot them in the leg? Well, now we're like, why would you shoot them at all? However, um, at the time, it was it was um, a lot of things that a lot of the discussion would circle back and be like, that's just not how they're trained, and that's that's just a fact. That's a, a simple fact. They are not trained to disable somebody if they have to pull a gun. They're trained center mass, and it's it's you know aim to end the threat, and that's an unfortunate way of saying kill them. Right. So I have a so it actually reminds me of um, I was listening to an NPR interview with Tanahasi Coates when I think between the world and me had come out, um, and he had talked about growing up in Baltimore and how the Baltimore PD was just another gang to negotiate with. Right. That they weren't. There was no protect and serve. They were just another gang mm-hmm. that was in the streets. Like you talked about, you know, the, there's they're, they're an authoritative figure that you're. So you're aware of and has this presence. Right, so right. Um, I'm interested in the, you have a critical perspective, of the police and having this intimate kind of experience or knowledge. Now, how do you feel police culture in particular has lend itself to this trajectory of BLM and where we are now with considering the fact that the training is, to end the threat. There is right. no, and, and we know that they are taught de-escalation, right? Because we've seen it so many times of like, so there's so many examples of police officers de-escalating when it comes to a, a white perpetrator or a white assailant, but not so much when it's a, a black and unarmed black mm-hmm. men. So yeah. what is yeah. it from your experience and from what you've heard or seen, what is it about police culture that allows that to happen? Well, what I will do real quick is just add that, you know, even, even amongst those rebuttals. And this is, again, we're talking about nearly a decade ago. There was always, and there always has been since then, the rebuttal that I've never seen this happen amongst his peers. So now what you just said, Faiza, is so true. Sorry, can you clarify? See, you haven't seen what happened. That he had he had never seen anything of the like like what happened in NYPD when with Eric Garner and the chokehold or with Michael right, Brown right, right. Okay. like charging mm-hmm. and then it ended in a in deadly force, and then the things like uh, there was Fred, I think his name was Freddie Gray in Baltimore like you said, 
So there is definitely, um, and we might get to this later, but there's definitely, like you mentioned about police being kind of gang-like, this typically and predominantly happens in bigger cities where there is a larger minority and there is a larger population of black civilians. So um, again, part of that rebuttal was I've never seen anything like that. Now, I wish at that time to just kind of respond to your question, Faiza, about um, police culture and how it's blended itself to where we are now. Uh, and it's still happening, but it, it definitely was happening with a much greater force then. And I, I was not as savvy to, to the movements. There was a lot of pushback, a lot of defensiveness, a lot of like us versus them. And a lot of like, we're brothers and we'll protect each other and that mentality. And so what, what ends up being what it is today, it, it's not this past decade, it's up the past couple hundred years, the past, you know, however long police forces have been in America and created an, an environment where um, they're armed, they're policing uh, neighborhoods and communities and people that they have no business policing because they don't understand them or their culture. And so they have bias and they have, um, you know, they have these like growing experiences that are negative, both the community and the police. And then you just get to like a really, a really like tough spot where there's a lot of friction and there's really only one choice when you get to that point where it's that bad, where the Baltimore police is looked at as a gang or, or the Camden police or Schenectady New York police is looked at as a complete and total failure. And that's to just start over there. There have been towns that have said we can't do anything but start over. I don't know if that totally answers your question, but I mean, it's just, um, it's like the mounting pressure of, of refusing to come together and understand each other, really. And refusing to change. So let's, sorry, Faiz, I heard you take a breath in as though you were going to ask a question, but I want to no, ask I'll one be- first. Yeah. <laughs> so you go ahead. I, uh, I, I wonder if it's the same thought. It probably will be. It, okay. So given that in some in areas, the only real option to change means a complete hard reset do-over, and in some areas, maybe we don't need a full reset, but need still a large, thorough, comprehensive overhaul, Right. what are your thoughts? Like, A, do you think it's feasible. B, do you think it's effective? And C, do you think it's necessary? C, is it necessary? Yeah. Um, so D, all of the above. All of the above. I, I, mean, was, I was about so to say that. It's, it's, it's a, I think there's one, there's a couple things that you have to like, really like that everybody really should grasp no matter what like end of the spectrum you are, is that there changes is, is past due. That's one. And two, it's going to cost a lot of money. And if there's a three, it's going to be every single 
town and an agency and jurisdiction and municipality and, and, and budget has to be treated differently. And so the answer again, with the United States of America, you know, you can compare it to, you, you can use like comparative studies, but we're not like anywhere else. We're not like Iceland or Finland or New Zealand, where it's a much smaller population, a much smaller area, or it might be a much more homogenous society. And so I love what I see a lot of places do. And a lot of towns here in America might be doing the same with services um, that are focused, but you cannot automatically, in my personal opinion, you cannot just defund, divest, or disband a police without having um, people, professionals, services, and resources ready and available to rectify the inequality that exists and has existed where they just shoved officers there to react to. So is it necessary? Yes. Is it feasible? Um, conceivably, I, I don't know because of how much um, disagreement there is and how much conservative culture tends to like own the government and own the, the thought process and the fear mongering. But it is necessary. It is necessary for the improvement of society. It is necessary for the education of our youth and the safety of our communities to have, um, you know, a, a police force in every area where there is one that knows their community, that understands their community, that is on a face-to-face, name-to-name basis with their community. And then in addition to that, there are mental health clinics, there are addiction specialists and clinics there are homeless shelters and and places where people can go to obtain services and assistance with jobs and children's schools aren't being shut down in their towns, so on and so forth. So that is but it's isn't so that much exactly nuance. But like the defunding mm-hmm. option entails, right? It would divert. It would take away these uh, bu- budget from these outsized police budgets and then put them to towards community services, right? So I think was it many? I don't know if it was Minneapolis or one of I the other towns that was San Francisco, but San Francisco, but. right? Yeah, it was like San Francisco or San. Yeah, I think it was San Francisco. That one um, of the sands. One of the sands. I don't know California. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, you can correct me later in the comments. I'm sure uh, if it's a sand, then it would be. Francisco then yeah and maybe it was Frisco oh, yeah, they had <laughs> they stopped deploying police officers to basically non-threatening uh right 911 calls so they, they they're deploying community services instead so if there was someone who's like asleep uh, I'm, I'm I'm forgetting his name there have been so many names I feel bad that I don't remember but the, oh, the, the one who's found sleeping in his car yeah, yeah. Why do you need police officers to respond mm-hmm. to that? He's not a threat. He's sleeping in his car, right? And if right. there was a community service officer or, or a commu- like a social worker who who showed up on the scene instead, it would have probably been like, "Hey, do you need a cup of coffee? Right? Why don't I walk you home? Whatever it is that you need in that moment, rather right. than what ended up happening." So, um, so I, I think that uh, that makes sense. That like a nine one one call does it honestly in that particular situation, why didn't somebody from Wendy's just walk out and be like, Hey, move your car. You know what I mean? Like, I think people are also afraid to, but that person has to be paid too. And they're going to be paid by the government. So, 
um, yeah, you will defund one agency, but you have to fund another. I guess that's what I'm trying to say is that um, it's feasible and we always ha happen to find the money to like make them equipped for war to go to the streets for protests. Right. So, they're actually buying decommissioned military vehicles yep. and equipment. It's kind of but crazy. Here's, and I, here's well, the thing. I was actually thinking about this the other day about defunding, right? Like Marwa said, you still have to fund a different program. And it may very well be like a social worker who responds to that kind of thing. But we're assuming that that social worker is not going to be racist or that, you know, exactly. mental health specialist or drug abuse specialist or whoever it is, is not going to be racist. It could very well, especially, and I, I, I don't even know why I was going to say deep in America because upstate New York has a lot of racists. No, you can go ahead and say America. deep in America because there, there is, there is a, whole, you know, we can say no, but when I say everywhere deep in America. I mean like the heartland, the middle of America. Right. And I corrected myself because at Colony Center, I always see MAGA hats. So right. whatever. Um, but, you know, we're assuming that these other individuals working for these other agencies are not going to be racist. But if they are, they're just going to call the cops. Like say a mental health specialist shows up to the guy sleeping in his car outside Wendy's, sees that he's black, assumes he's a threat, calls the cops and it it's still such, ends up the way. Such and, a uh, valid, valid point. And it goes back to the people that serve the community have to be part of that community. And yeah, then you I have your colorblind people that come out and say, we don't like this. We're colorblind. And we just have to be a society that says, you know what? Black people have a different experience. There right. is, I think it's yeah, part of ahead. that training, right? It's just right. it's with that divesting, with that reallocation of resources comes, uh, you know, training on implicit biases. It comes mm -hmm. with understanding how black people operate in this world very differently than others. Um, and the, I mean, it, it hopefully would naturally reduce the risk of the police being called if you have a social worker showing up but it also comes with this blm doesn't just stop with the protests right it has to it comes with this uh, understanding and continuing to work on being woke or being an ally allyship is not an identity it's a practice right and for for uh, those of us who are not black and non-black pocs we have to continue to practice that and it comes with making sure that we're constantly keeping our racism and our implicit biases in check in 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 our professional lives as well and so you just can't you can't work around that it's about um acknowledging that that's very much a reality. We are all a little bit racist. Right. And I think it's also going back to what you were saying, Marva, about the U.S. being, it's like 50 different little countries, right? And we're seeing that mm -hmm. with COVID, the response to COVID, all of right. these states and government agencies are, um, are handling it very, very differently with varying results. And now more than ever, you're seeing how fractured we are as a country and Isn't how there is crazy very that little. I'm 35 and I'm still like, oh, so that's not a federal thing. Oh yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> that there's just like no common purpose. Yeah. There's no like, oh, we're we are all Americans. Let's keep an eye out for each other and wear fucking masks. Even that's debated. Um, but back to the point that I wanted to make, which is that we have this over-reliance, America in particular, it's very much an American problem, of mass incarceration as just like the 
the um, answer to everything, right? right? Mental health issues, substance use issues, Mm -hmm. minor drug offenses. Right, exactly. All of that. Like, that's what we, the first thing that comes to mind is like, we'll just call the cops. Even people who are like not wearing masks, they'll just throw them in jail. They'll learn the lesson. It's just like, no, that's not going to solve anything. That's only going to perpetuate this like. It's not going to solve anything. And there's a couple things that I want to like say before I lose the point. Like you did say like deep in America and you're 100% right. I was in a law enforcement building and I saw a make America great, a MAGA hat on someone on a law enforcement, uh, like a sergeant's desk. And I was like, inappropriate. How is is that allowed? It, I don't, it is. In any professional setting. In any government setting. Yeah. Especially because separation of you know, these like politics. Because if everybody's in agreement, who the hell is going to call blow the whistle? Exactly. But it was the first thing I noticed. I even whispered it while I was standing right there. But to your point. Who is reporting the rampant cocaine use on Wall Street, right? No one, because they're all doing it. No one. They're not going to do it. I mean, they're they're not going to rock the boat. But to your point, and I like, this is important to say, because um, it, the racism and bias will flow through every single agency. It doesn't matter it, you know, and right, wrong, or indifferent. We have, um, maybe like more overt racism in upstate New York or in New York in general, whereas, you know, there is a, an actual legal defense right now in Satilla Shores, Georgia, in the murder of Ahmaud Arbery, where they say, it is commonplace and normal where we are for white people to use the word, the N word, you know what I mean? Like, so that is a valid point. I I don't think that it shouldn't be said or that we should be like, well, this happens everywhere. It does happen everywhere, but there is 100% like more segregation and racism that are, that still exists as a culture in different parts of America. And so when I think about divesting and defunding and relying on community members, I'm obviously going to automatically think, will they be those same community members that are like going to make the defense that it's, we can say the N word because it's part of our culture. It's just a normal thing. Get over it. It's not that big a deal. So ultimately, you know, we, ha- we, I, I do think as a s- society that we have to get over this hump of like, um, being afraid to say like black people or like describing somebody as black or brown or whatever. Cause there is this like fear of like, even pretending like you might have an ounce of like noticing race. It's okay. You know, and, and it's, it, it would be more ideal just like in indigenous and native American communities where they can go to a court system and look at people that are their people where Jewish Hasidic people in New York city have created their own ambulatory services. It's okay to acknowledge that different communities might want to look at themselves when they're in, in having issues or having problems or need help. So, you know, I just wanted to address that point that, yeah, there are parts of America where, where it's a a way more serious issue than somebody being obnoxious with a hat. Yeah, absolutely. That's fair. That's fair. Um, 
what I'm dying to know, Marla, and I'm going to digress a little bit because really this was the main reason I wanted to record this episode with you anyway. I cannot, for the life of me, understand slash reconcile the quote-unquote good cops in the system. And this is by no means a hit on your husband, who has always been a very nice person from all the interactions I've had with him, nor is it a hit against any of the other law enforcement officers. I know, but when I think about the collective situation, in my logical mind, I just cannot fathom that there are cops in the system who see these offensively, outrageously, undeniably racist policies, procedures, practices, culture, and don't do anything about it absent saying, yeah, that was wrong. Oh, right. they shouldn't have reacted in right. that way. And Just I know how it kind of ends up. Yeah, I agree. That was wrong. And I right, exactly. And I know the argument is, you know, there's no there's no culture of affecting change affecting change from inside the organization. Mm-hmm. Nobody snitches, you know, right. blue lives matter. There's this extreme, extreme fraternity, very tight knit right. camaraderie. And nobody's going to break rank and say something. But in my head, that registers as then you're not a good cop, right? If you're silent in the face of this, then you're complicit. You don't get to call yourself a good cop. You don't get to say that, well, I wouldn't do that. And that's not how I would react. I fundamentally agree with that. So I'm interested in... almost like how he feels about it, which I get that it's not a fair question to ask you because you're not him. Yeah, that's okay. But I'm going to ask you anyway. And secondly, I'm interested in your response to the disdain that much of the country now has towards law enforcement, knowing that your husband is... And when I say quote unquote, I'm not mocking him, but obviously he's not one to carry out these brutal practices. He's not racist. He's not any of those things. Like he's not the bad apple. Um, And I know he's done a lot of really tremendous policing and he's provided a lot of life-saving support for people um, the way the police was intended to. Mm -hmm. So what. So here's where I'll break the fourth wall a little bit. Um, it was a major issue uh, in, in terms of discussion and dialogue and debate over time, like as, as things became a little bit more extreme and exposed and case after case got attention. And of course we have the wonderful world of social media in real time. And, you know, some things are so indefensible that it doesn't even matter anymore it, you know, it, it, it serves no purpose to even attempt to dismiss it. Um, we've, we've gotten away from pretending that these things are excusable and by we, I mean like, you know, 
him and or other people that he works with. Now, does that mean that, like you said, like anybody's rocking the boat or shaking it from the bottom and trying to like, uh, like knock the bureaucracy down from the top down? No, that's not happening. Um, however, when I said I'll break the fourth wall, I'm, what I'm, what I am telling you is that I, um, over time became really disgusted with the type of work that he had to do, the type of, um, the, the type of, uh, things that he was filling his hours with. And it's a cycle that every department and an agency is going to be held to, which is to Are collect you money. To elaborate on that? Well, I, I requested that he work his way out of, um, police work. And so he moved on from police work in the streets into, um, backroom investigative work, which was a lot more meaningful work. And then that became, um, a little bit like overall, you know, I don't want to speak on his experience, but in general, it was the underbelly of society and traumatizing. And so after a few years we worked on, you know, like I kind of just encouraged him. I can't tell him what to do with his career, but encourage him to move on to an even higher level of police work that doesn't even involve that. So I went through years of hell with being, watching him and being in disagreement with what was just not naturally good. And I, I, I it was poignant because I remember him when my brother, one of my brothers was like 19 or 20 years old, I remember him encouraging him to like take the test and go to the academy. And when he walked away, my brother was like, what is, like does he think I'm going to fucking pull over a 19 year old and give him a ticket? I am a 19 year old. I, why would I like, he was like, we were kind of laughing about it, but he was dead serious. He was like, I could never, I would not be able to do it with a straight face. I would never be able to look at somebody and kind of like mess with their lives like that. And that's a small example, like a traffic infraction, but, um, that doesn't necessarily answer your question about, can you be a good cop and, and exist in this agency? They're always going to justify and maybe rightfully so that they do put on out, like a lot of them who do good work, put a lot on the line every time they go and do that work. Now I, may sound like a sellout for saying this, but it's a, it's a whole system. And we're talking about the system of, of policing to fund the town, to meet a budget, to fill the, the, um, courts, you know, line the courts pockets with money that they need, and then also fulfill contracts of prisons. And by the way, this is a democratic and Republic problem. So it, it's like, they're just like a piece of the puzzle They're you know, like being a, a good cop might be standing in front of a bunch of other cops and holding a plaque that says, I have the most DUIs. Meanwhile, half of them are wrongful, you know, convictions of that. So this is, this is my major issue with police departments in general which is that it's bad apples spoil the bunch, right? It's not bad apples and you throw them out and everything's fine after that. It, it spoils the bunch. It is um, a, a system that was created from economic and social 
it, it was created to and it's pervasive. It's pervasive, right? And it has a racist history, and a, a and it was created to protect a certain class of people. A police forces were created to um, protect a certain class of people, and that has that is continued. That tradition has continued. It is very much like that us versus them um, mm-hmm. mentality. And so, for me, it's when you have an institution that is so seems so rotted to the core, and that good people, good cops can't do their work or can't even speak up without retribution and very real retribution. Um, and complicity is the golden rule. How can you, and this is where I'm going to drop that Audre Lorde quote from last time, mm-hmm. which is the master's tools can't dismantle the master's house. How can you fix a system that is so corrupt and that is also part of a larger, like to your point, Marva, larger, part, part of a larger institution like criminal justice the criminal part of the criminal justice system, which in itself is inherently racist, right? right. Like you're, you have prosecutors. It's like you said, you have prosecutors, DAs who, who choose the crimes to prosecute. And for the most part, from all the studies that have been done, they're racist. They have implicit bias. Like they, 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 there have been so because many studies human. done. Like our right. justice system is based on humans making these decisions juries have biases like nothing it's is it's, it's that's the thing is like is it's balanced and it's like this the same thing about like you have a black a person and a white person and they have this they've committed the same infraction same the same right. kind of history and, and one of them gets 10 years the other one gets like three months or uh, whatever. not even like a slap on the wrist go right. home have a nice yeah. day right yeah. and then you have what did like you said, get he got like an hour months. of community service or he got six months and it was, was like time served of sympathy countrywide yeah. is what he got what was and what was the rhetoric what were the headlines like oh yeah. stanford swimmer you know like yeah, that, that's the kind of because his life would be ruined, right? And that he couldn't eat his steak dinners. Yeah, his dad was like, he can't even eat his dinners anymore. And there's like, who <laughs> the used fuck to cares steak. about that? Yeah, <laughs> and now he can't even look at it. Good. Okay, so sad for him. But that's the thing is just like when you have a system, when you have an agency or an aspect of the system that's so corrupt, and that's and then when you like pull the the lens out further, it's part of a larger system that's very corrupt and very racist. Like how where do you even start? It's not even I feel like it's beyond the good cop, bad cop thing because good I mean, cops I have can't an do anything. Idea of where to start, but uh, you know, again, it, it's gonna go back to our discussion about how do how does a community or how do we start with like the the idea and the actions behind like defunding or or restructuring entirely and reforming entirely and uh it it's gonna come down to like a push comes to shove situation like with george floyd where city council members in minneapolis are like finally standing up and saying we're gonna consider disbanding and and then you know like we're almost eight years out from camden new jersey doing the same and then completely reforming and starting over and they're just kind of settling in. Um, but this is going to take years and it's going to take money and it's going to take case studies and it's going to take an overhaul. And it, it really like it, I, I, again, I hate to like not answer the question, but it really has to be like a To be fair, I don't overhaul. think we're asking you any questions that can be no, answered. I yeah. So, yeah. Well, I mean, like, we're definitely like, putting like, you on the spot. No, I would uh, like to be able to say, for example, like, oh, no, there's definitely good cops. Or, no, they're not all bad. Or, like, but here's, like, you know what? Just a few months ago, I finally got the effing balls to email my CEO 
about 13 years of sexual harassment, racial discrimination, religious discrimination, sexual assaults that occurred to me on the job, um, tons of explicit bias against black people, including firing them several times. We had very few black employees and they always found a way to fire them, but keep other people that were utterly useless. It took me that long. And even when I wrote my email, I said, I'm afraid I'm going to lose my job writing this. And he responded to me on Saturday morning and has since created a, a diversity council. And, you know, that's a lot of like things that people say, for example, we're getting closer, but a lot of things people say, that's like, kind of like, you know, that's not necessarily what I asked for. I was really being like, yo, give me money. I've suffered. <laughs> but also, <laughs> fuck you for for getting on the intranet and saying, I'm so proud of this company and how inclusive it is. That's really what got me. It was a Maya Angelou quote on the intranet. I was like, I'm done. I'm done. I wrote like a 2,000 word email. But it does take a lot of balls to be in a position where you're a peon and you need to eat. Yeah. And and you're like, what am I up against? They're mammoths, you know, like, and so like, it's, it's hard. To- I guess my, my moral issue and, you know, not that it has any grounding because like, whatever, it's so not relevant when people are literally dying. But for me, it's like, if that's the case, then just don't say that, you know, well, I'm, that's, that's a bad apple because like Fiza said, it's not a bad apple. It's not like one ant yeah. that you can kill or one fly that you can kill and the rest of your fruit is fine. Right. It's literally, and I, I think about it. I went through a phase of my life where I was like obsessed with the prison system and I would just read about it all the time. And I would read like non-fictional accounts and it was very bizarre. Um, it's like my mom when she couldn't stop watching. Like right to miles. parole boards on behalf of prisoners. I had never met. It was very <laughs> can you very strange shot. Love after lockup, please. <laughs> and it was Find like somebody. when I first started working on Wall Street, and I I don't know. I clearly I was not happy with my career choice. Anyway, um, so I like I have a lot of um, knowledge about correction officers mm-hmm. for someone who's a finance uh, undergrad in JD. Um, But, you know, in my view, you cannot be an untainted corrections officer. You cannot be an unaffected corrections officer because the nature of that job is so all consuming and so pervasive. You cannot, it is. It's also disgusting. Mentally, emotionally impossible for you to leave work at the door, right? It's just not the nature of the job. And I think most law enforcement is the same. And so it is, it's a hard, it's a hard thing to be married to, by the way. Right. And my sticking point is like, you can't have a job like that. Like you can't be, I don't even know another analogy to make, but you can't have a job like that and say, but I'm, I'm one of the good ones. And again, like, I, I don't mean to cross boundaries and this is by no means a specific jab oh, at your husband or care. any of the other law enforcement officers <laughs> I know, because personally I think they're all good people. But when it comes to this, it, it, 
it just doesn't make sense in my head. So I feel like there's no other choice but to completely defund, divest, completely change the way we train these officers, the way we arm these officers, Mm -hmm. what we give them the jurisdiction to deal with. And that. No, you're right. And you're right. And also, again, like I'm going to say like over the years, discussions have changed and the the nature of our, of like his viewpoints have kind of changed too. Um, He doesn't tell me everything that happens at work. So I can't even really say exactly who's been tattled on, who's done this and who's whatever. I know that there's been cases where people have been like disciplined and other cases where there's been cover-ups, but to circle back, you know, our president, I hate to say it, girl without a president. Trump said once, not once recently, that he's disgusted. Girl without a president. I love it. Yes. <laughs> Episode. Yeah. Title. It, that he's disgusted by these discussions about uh, defunding police. So it's just not in our culture. We have a lot to learn from other nations who have uh, police on patrol with zero weapons on them. We have a lot to learn from uh, towns that have invested in social services. We have a lot to learn about towns that have rebuilt their police. And then it's, it's it like the, here's, here's my final point that I'll say. And it, here's where some intersectionality will come in. I'm a child of Egyptian parents who watched their homeland crumble in the Arab spring. It was too much. It was unplanned. It was well-intentioned. It was due because there was millions of unemployed young adults who couldn't afford homes even. So we're facing a similar thing. I'm not, I would not be surprised if we had some sort of very close to civil war like situation. And so what scares me as like a citizen and a civilian is things is, is that we continue to not under the viewpoints continue to like butt heads and not understand each other. It's very much an echo chamber. Yeah. Yeah. And then they stay in their echo chamber and others stay in that echo chamber. And then there's never a meeting of minds and there's never a trial of these ideas of rectifying the inequalities. And if that continues to happen, we're going to face a situation where we're not prepared and the people are done. And then it's going to be even worse. And I think that's the thing is when you have a group that is so adamant that these problems don't exist Mm -hmm. or that these problems exist because, because it's the, the fault of the, the victims, you can't, where do you even start that dialogue? And then there's no base happens and they just beat them yeah, or kill them. It's happening in Portland right now. It looks just like it was happening during the Arab spring. So like I see those things and it, it worries me because like the path that things go when um, you just keep arming and telling them to use violence and they're going to do it. (laughs) They're going to choose the people that they look at and already feel some type of hate for which is probably going to be people that don't look like them. So we usually like to end this episode (laughs) (laughs) on a happy note. 
Uh, Which I mean, is we need exactly to, where we were going with this right? conversation. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I, we need to change the name of this series to something else. It's uh, quarantine isn't cutting it anymore. Yeah, it's not great. But um, we usually I end this bitch with kind of, is like taken. I've heard of another podcast called that. I don't even think it's bitch doesn't <laughs> anymore. It's just like depression and anxiety mm-hmm. series. Um, oh, my life. All the things that keep you up at night. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, Marva, I'm going to put you on the spot again, which we've been doing this entire episode. But um, do you have any positive lessons learned from this whole experience related to BLM, um, but not necessarily maybe just something uh, while yeah. you've been in quarantine? Oh, quarantine has been my wildest introvert wet dream. Like, it's just so good. I love it. It's great. I love having an excuse at all times not to see people. Right. But I, love <laughs> but I think it's a perfect storm for like people to be ready to receive a lot of messages that are going on around them and also learn more and see more because, uh, you know, I've been working this whole time. I have continued to do my job, but um what have I learned in general? Honestly, I'm going to take it even further back. Um, where I was as a child growing up and how I viewed authorities, it's never changed. When I go to these Christmas parties and I'm around a bunch of cops and investigators, I have severe, severe anxiety, like palpitations, like in my throat. I'm not comfortable and I've never been. And I don't even understand when, like at times when I've been pulled over and I'm literally going to piss my pants, why they're still yelling at me. I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm so afraid in front of you right now. You don't have to do this to me. But what I've learned is that, um, I'm never going to stop learning. I mean, because I, I think back to things that I thought when I first got married and, and was like, immediately immersed into the inside culture of it and felt kind of exclusive and kind of special and kind of like I had this like get out of jail free card but then all those other things didn't go away the things that I I remember not liking the things that I remember being intimidated by the racism that's it did not ever go away and so um what I've learned is what I would like for myself, which is when I tell somebody about my personal experience, believe me. And so I'm trying to do that more and more and more with every single person that tells me their personal experience that may not be one I grew up with, which is to believe them, to understand them. And to, like you said, act as an ally when, and if I can. Yeah, that's great. Thank you so much. Mahek. Um, I have literally nothing positive to share, but <laughs> Marla's reflection reminded me of one more question, unprofessional question I want to ask her. And that is Marla, give me your number one spouse of a law enforcement officer perk. Aside from having like the dopest gold trimmed um, PBA card in the game. Yeah. Well, the one that says spouse and the guy pulled me over was like, are you still married to him? And I was like, I think so. Literally, you check know this registration. It's his fucking car. Like, <laughs> you know, it's really funny. So, my husband drives a suburban, which for those who are unaware is basically the size of an airplane. Yeah. And when we got married, family likes that. What's with I know. suburbans? We, we have 
We have a bit of a mafia going on here. Don't tell anybody. Um, you should not see his parents' driveway on Eve. It's literally five black suburbans tinted out. It's I know. It's quite the whole thing. It's bizarre. I love um, the commitment. But when we got suburbans. married, I had um, I was leasing uh, Acura TSX, and I remember once him and I were going. We were going out of state, and we were taking my car because it got more than eleven miles to the gallon, and. Obviously, the difference between a TSX and a Suburban is insane. So he would, like, touch the gas, and he was going, like, 110, mm. and he got pulled over, and he used your husband's PPA card. <laughs> and the D-bag officer was like, why don't you call your friend right now and tell him how fast you were going and oh, see if shit. he still wants you to use the car? And Raz was like, huh? <laughs> He's like, I don't really have his number on me right now. <laughs> I think we invited you guys to dinner like literally the next day. That's so funny. Um, That's my positive story. See, we ended on a laugh, guys. You know what, though? It has nothing to do with it. I still have to go go and I'm going to ruin it now for everybody. He's he's been really good with it, though, because I've had had him come up to me and be like, did you give a card to so-and-so? I'm like, uh, yeah. And he's like, a trooper called me on the road, found him with drugs. He's speeding. Okay, that was not my husband. And I no, it was not. I'm just saying he's been really great. And I'm like, okay. And like same day I'll get a text message from that friend that's like, yo, a trooper took my card. Can you mail me another one? I'm like, no, I can't and my and my drugs. Yeah, you've abused the privilege. Um, but like the biggest perk, real quick story. I've told I think we talked about this like offline. The time I went to Montreal and came back on my own and ended up being um put inside the like literally the the custom the border patrol guy coming back into America by the way. So pleasant to welcome me back. Took me out of my car at the turnstile and walked me into the customs building. And I was uh, held for hours. Like my body was searched. I was questioned on every single place I'd ever been in my life. And then when I was engaged and we went up together, we stopped about 10 minutes out from the border. And I was like, get in the driver's seat. I'm not having a panic attack again. And he flashed his badge and they were like, welcome back, brother. And they like sent us into America. And I was like, I'll marry you. I'm good. (laughs) That sealed the deal for you? Yeah, I was like, yeah, that was, I mean, it's never been that good again, but. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so I'll do my quick lesson lesson learned, um, and then we can plug our socials and all of that. Um, So this isn't a, not necessarily a positive, but it is a lesson that I think people should know, which is uh, silence in the face of injustice is complicity. Complicity is tacit approval. Like, Th- that's just where we are now. You no cannot be silent. hundred um, percent. And so, and I've said this before, that's something that I am now trying to practice and really be critical about the ways in which I perpetuate racism and injustice or benefit from um, implicit bias and making sure that I continue to do this work because it's a lot of work. Um, and I also agree, like I'm having a really great time in quarantine. <laughs> And it's my, my, this is like my introvert brain is loving it. And I don't think I can ever go back to normal life. And I don't I mean, to. isn't it crazy how much can you can get done at home? I, my, outside of a my toxic office culture, never been so clean. <laughs> I 
cook so much more. I'm like happily fed and And you're probably more productive. Oh, hell yeah. So much more productive. And more comfortable when you're wearing loungewear 24 seven and not trying to fit yourself into unnatural clothing. Why? Why do we do it? I don't, I don't I can't remember the last time I put on a real bra. (laughs) I can't ever go back to that life. I love what you said though. That's, that's really true. And it's, Again, like it's something we've grown into, I think, because we've all grown in an environment of like perhaps levels of oppression, but now being adults and looking around us and uh, not just commiserating, but like understanding and empathizing and getting down on your knees and being like, that could be me. The only thing that separates me and you is a little bit of difference in how we look. Yeah, and or luck. Yeah. Or luck, luck. just pure 100% luck. So that's, you know, like, I love that. I love, I just love the idea of like never stopping. And I know people like have this, like, Oh no, relax this and that. And sure. But like when it comes to this, never stop. Oh yeah, exactly. Um, Marva, do you have, it's not an option. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Mara, do you have any socials you want to plug? And if you don't, don't worry about it. Maybe there's a blog or another person's social you want to shout out. Um, like the Femdementalists on Instagram. Wink, wink. Definitely <laughs> your your guys' thing. My personal Instagram is a little too personal. <laughs> I mean, you can add me on there, but I don't. It's not anything but me. Uh, making fun of my life. So no, not really. <laughs> Very well uh, done. Mahek. Um on Instagram I'm Mahek Jamil or at Mahek Jamil and on Twitter you can find me at Nisi. Um for me, Fiza, it's at the Cold Shoulder Cat on Instagram and at Cold Shoulder Cat on Twitter and then of course, you can follow us on the Femdementalists on Instagram for latest updates. Should follow us. Yeah, please do. It's run right now by my two cousins, Sada and Nuda, who are doing a really great job, and they're doing job. it for discounted beauty products and great. free dinners. Um, which? How old are know, they? Uh, Nineteen and eighteen and uh, twenty or something. Like right. Old they enough know, to use because right. you yes, cannot. Yeah, you cannot bribe me with beauty products they literally today. send me like they they'll just record their screens of, of i'll be like how do you do this and then they'll be like you fucking idiot <laughs> like a quick 15 second video of like how to do it and you, know, then I, uh, you can probably make a doctor's appointment to me and they can't so yeah this is very true i can't and i have my own health insurance so Marla, thanks so, so much for being yeah. on with us. This thank was you guys really, for really having me. And yeah, it's great. Love thank you for you. thank you for um, taking our questions in stride. Yeah, no, I appreciate thanks, it. Thanks for attempting to answer all the. It's all enjoying. all valuable stuff to talk about. Thank you guys so much. All right, thanks, well, everybody. we'll see you guys. Yep. Bye-bye. Have a good night. Bye.